Welcome to this uh, sharing of Dharma together. Mm-hmm. For those of you here, good evening. You've been working very hard, and despite that, making time for here is wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> and for those in Singapore, waking up early in the morning, <laughs> using your weekend Saturday morning for the Dharma. Uh, session is awesome, <laughs> and it's wonderful. It's it's really precious and very worthy way of spending our time while we are alive. Who knows for how long, but whatever time we have. Together for ourselves, it's good to utilize on projects or works, endeavors that are going to make us a better human being, bring our human potential to the fullest, to be of benefit to oneself and others. So just meant to remind all of ourselves, including myself, of this wonderful time together in discussing Dharma. So, before we move into the actual session, well, let's start with calming our mind and body by sitting for a few minutes in quiet silent meditation. Bringing your attention to the here and now, and wherever you you are, in that room or space, and trying to slow the mind ideally to the pace of a natural rhythm of breathing, unforced, unregulated, but relaxed, calm way of natural breathing, bring your mind to that pace, and to help facilitate that, I do make the breathing the focus of your attention. And in focusing on the breath, try to do so alertly, attentively, delightfully, all combined together in being with the breath. While being aware of the breath, try to maintain the balance between pushing too hard and being completely careless, 
to bring in some intentional effort to attend to the breath, yet at the same time not forcing too hard. And along with doing that, try to cultivate clarity of the object of the focus, as well as the subjective agent focusing on it. Leave aside all concerns, worries, things that you have to attend to, at least for this moment. Leave them aside, let go of them, and bring full attention. So at this point, we will say the, we will recite the homage to Shakyamuni Buddha together. And as always, try to make the most of this, because the relatively calm and peaceful mind in trying to focus on what you are saying and try to mold the mind wherever appropriate into that particular spirit, and while one's body is in a respectful gesture, that the mind and the speech, speech as well kind of come together in making full use of this time. Dharma sharing session. Uh, today, by way of reflection before the actual discussion, I would like to share something about the recitation that we do. This one, we call it Homage to Shakyamuni Buddha. In Tibetan, we usually call it Junsha Sumba, which means the daily tree. That's the best I could come up with. <laughs> The daily tree. 
And uh, this, the daily three to be done, uh, are child seva, prostrations, paying homage to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, obviously, to the Buddha in an extensive way, and to the Dharma and Sangha as well, with one stanza each. And then the second is Dodumba, recite something from the Sutra. That's that's what we are doing by reciting uh, the portion from uh, Dhammapada, as well as from Udana work. Uh, this particular stanza, do not commit any non-virtuous actions, perform only perfect virtuous actions, subdue your mind completely. This is the teaching of the Buddha. This is an extract from the sutras. Um, yeah, this appears in the Pratimoksha Sutra, be that in the Dhammaguttaka, as well as in the Mulasarvastivadin. So, and then the the stanza following that, a star, a mirage, a flame of a lamp, an illusion, a drop of dew, a bubble, a dream, a flash of lightning, a cloud, nine of them. <laughs> The conditioned things as such. This too is from a sutra, but rather a Mahayana sutra, the one of the Prajaparamita sutras called Lojajupa, Diamond Gutter Sutra, as well as Rajna Paramita Sutra of 300 verses. Yes, it's called. The Prasnaparamita Sutras usually are called by their length. I think Heart Sutra is one of them, and it's called the 25. The entirety of it may come to, if it were put in verses, verses, then it will come to some around 25 verses, so it's called the 25. Anyway, and then the last one, through this merit, may, may sentient beings attain. This is the dedication. So the third one is the dedication. So making prostrations, paying homage, reciting portion of sutra, and then dedicating the merit. So having said that, having said that, this is this format is not necessarily the one that was there in the Buddha's time. Uh, today I found its mention even in uh, Vinaya Sutra. Although it is called Sutra, but it is not actual Sutra, okay? Vinaya Sutra, there the term Sutra is used to convey the brevity, brevity of the text, of its compact, concise nature, composed by, I think, one of the main masters of Vinaya. So even there also there's this mention of um, reciting the three, daily three. It's quite interesting. And that is 
spoken of in relation to, since it's the Vinaya text, it deals with the precepts. And among the precepts, I think from among the four feature lapses, among the four feature lapses, one about abstaining from damaging seeds, cutting plants unnecessarily. In that respect, this particular recitation is suggested as a way of seeking the permission from whoever the uh, the plant dweller may be, non-human plant dweller may be. That's one of the recommended recitations, even back then. But in terms of what we have here, it's a collection from so many different sutras. And uh, I've also noticed that uh, in the Tibetan tradition, uh, this format that we have, maybe the one that the Geluk Pasi use, but in Kaju, Nyingma, Sakya, I suspect they have different version of it. Kind of more or less based on this, but taking liberty in expanding here and there. Like in the case of uh, paying homage to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. I think they, incl they include the sutra of remembering, of recollecting Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And also, it's interesting, the last stanza, here we have in this form, through this married messenger beings attain the state of all things, subdue all faults, and be delivered from the ocean of cyclic existence, preserved by the waves of aging, sickness, and death. Uh, the wording, even in Tibetan, is slightly different when uh, someone from other tradition, Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, reciting. But it's mainly the same. Maybe they are using different translations. So, having said that, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. These are all taken from different sutras. Uh, I don't know about the last dedication, if that is a part of a sutra or not. But other than that, all the rest are from the sutra different sutras. It's quite interesting. The one about Buddha having paced seven strides and said, I'm the supreme in the world. This seems to appear in the, the sutra on meeting the father and son. So it might be, not that I've read it fully, excerpts I have come across from that, but this portion I haven't come across. I suspect it might be the king kind of recalling, you did this, when you went this small, <laughs> when Buddha finally, almost 12 years after he became fully awake and he returned to pay a visit to the king. So that to the time the king was very old, reminded him, oh, you definitely are special, you always were even when you were very small, you did this. I suspect this might be the context because this is quoted, this is drawn from that sutra. Although it appears in other sutras as well. And so I wanted to bring the attention to the 
importance of remembering Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. There are in different collections of or different what do you call mm, groupings, groupings of recollections, uh, recollection practices. One of them is six recollections, right? Of which the first three are the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, and then the last three are mm, generosity, morality, and then the last one. Sometimes it says something, stabilization. And sometimes, in some cases, it says, ha, celestial beings, as a way of witnessing. In some cases, it says, something Shastamba. So, remembering the importance, value, significance, the need of stabilization practice or concentration practice. So, anyway. Remembering Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha together with these qualities is very much emphasized. And very often in the scriptures, it comes that uh, it, it, it is expressed in the wish that may I be able to remember them when I am at the point of death. That would make a big difference. Because, because it's almost like from our side, reaching out to the Buddha. And Buddha would never say no. Right? His or her compassion, wisdom, care is always extended to all sentient beings. And the reason why we are either not getting or getting very little is because we aren't opening ourselves up fully. <laughs> so when we remember, it's like creating a creating a Hook to latch onto Buddha's ring of compassion. I have a story here to tell you. I was shared this by a nun, Tibetan Buddhist nun, who came to Emory for the Emory Tibetan Science Initiate program. And uh, During one of the spring breaks, or one of the breaks, longer breaks, she was gone. And so then we met. She told me that she had been to her, her American sponsor, family, uh, of whom, of which the mother, is a believer in Buddhism, and I think maybe your husband, but I haven't, that didn't transpire in our conversation. But she had an accident, and her car fell over a ridge, something. While in the process of falling, she somehow managed to remember Buddha. All of a sudden, the car stopped. And when they came out of the dangling car, and they looked, how could it have stopped? They couldn't really figure out oh, this caused it to stop here. The car stopped. Psst. 
Yeah, so that makes sense. If one have one has very strong faith, very strong I mean preferably faith faith based on reasoning, understanding. And one cares to bring it up every now every every day. Then it becomes stronger and stronger and stronger, eventually even habitual. So that every time it will be with in, instead of saying be calm and quiet and then remember Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. So so in the scriptures it says that uh, remembering Buddha, Dharma and Sangha in the every morning uh, in the Pali tradition this this opening recitation is very similar to their recitation, almost one to one. Right? And then it becomes expanded as usual with the Mahayana. The, the, the Mahayana is like elaborate, <laughs> exquisite, <laughs> expansion, <laughs> colorful, <laughs> many layers. <laughs> Not just double decker, so many deckers. But the, the opening lines are exactly one to one. Namo dasa bhagavato. Wow. I will tell you another story. I don't think you will mind. I was in a conference back, way back, eons back. <laughs> At a Christian church. But, oh yeah, that was an at, at a Christian, Christian monastery, Christian monastery in India, uh, where they had this interfaith discussion, in the in interfaith conference, where I happened to be one of the participants with another Bandeji, very elderly Bandeji from Burma, Burma, with his attendant. They were practicing the Vinaya. So strictly, and so in the middle of the conference, which would usually go up to one, one and a half, they would just leave at twelve. I noticed that on the first day, and then the second day, I followed them, and then we decided to meet every morning for the prayer, and that at that time I told the Venerable, I know we also are supposed to observe this, except this, we have some excuses, <laughs> because our, at the time I was in the middle of pursuing my studies, so our study structure is such that we stay up way late at night and debate, and then lots of energy we need, so but that's why we are lapsed on that, and that's why we extend lunchtime. But it is sick after lunch. And so I kind of explained that, yes, we are supposed to do it, and I appreciate you doing it. So every morning we met uh, outside of the conference, and we did this prayer. And he told me, because you must say this, and I had the delight to really share with him that yes, we actually do this, 
in an expanded way with but the openings one to one same and he was very delighted to hear that somehow he was carrying a pouch of gold pouch of gold what do you call nuggets he has gold nuggets but round and he took one and gave it to me to this day I have it on my Buddha's arms bow. I'm not supposed to keep it with me that long but at least it is there so I'm thinking of donating to the Buddha from long time ago yeah at that time, all we decided was this, and the qualities, as I was saying, there were so many qualities have been brought out here. It would be good to go in detail so that every time we decide, we decide, it would be rich. It would be so beautiful, so beautiful. Likewise, does I mean, likewise, all of the senses here, and then. The star, the mirage, the flame. Oh, it's so rich. It, it, it virtually, not virtually, it, it deals with impermanence, dukkha, of course, emptiness, and our illusory, uh, our misconceptions, our illusion, nature. All of these are in there. And then the last dedication is so rich. It's really bringing up the samsara in its bare form and generating this aspiration, the highest aspiration of all sentient beings. So at this point, I want to draw your attention to this fourth stanza, paying homage to the Buddha, great, great compassionate protector, all-knowing teacher. Build up merit and good qualities, vast as the ocean, to the Tathagata I bow. So the first two are his or her personal quality, from the method side, from the wisdom side, that of compassion, love, kindness, on the one hand, and that of fully omniscient, knowing, understanding. Expect of The third one, filled of merit and good qualities, vast as an ocean. This is something we need to think about. How, in what ways, Buddha is filled of merit and good qualities, vast as an ocean. First, filled of merit and good qualities. I would rather uh, think of this as filled of merit, sunam, sunam yishin, yasus, yeah, it is it is good qualities. I I think of it as merit and of the, of the two collections, merit and wisdom. Yeah. So field of cultivating merit and wisdom, field of building merit and wisdom, and that too vast as an ocean. And here it would be good to think of 
the Buddha's activities. And it is expanded in the eighth, eighth chapter in terms of Shastra's eighth chapter Abhisamaya Alankar. And there it will be interesting to see how the activities of the Buddha. I'm calling it activities, but the Tibetan term is Tinle. What do you call activities? Enlightened activities, yeah. So enlightened activities, Tinle. Enlightened activities uh, involve leading beings a step ahead of where they are, kind of meeting them at where they are and then bringing them a little, a notch better, right? So it's so-called 27 enlightened activities. In a way, kind of our activities in terms of in terms of reaching or meeting sentient beings at where they are. And, and that's kind of nudging them little ahead of where they were on the path. Uh, right? So it, it means their enlightened activities cover all sentient beings at whatever level they may be. And then on the part of the sentient beings to benefit from it, one should have this reception, a spirit of reception, preferably founded on uh, understanding of what Buddha means, how he or she has attained Buddhahood, what has involved, what did them, what did it involve them, so kind of thinking of the whole trajectory of their progression. And that too, solely from the very start, solely for the sake of all sentient beings. And it makes perfect sense that at the, at the culmination of that process, all they have to do is, all they have, all they care is just sentient beings' welfare. And the vantage point there is now they are fully capable fully capable. So, I want to bring your attention to this aspect of the Buddha's being, of how it is not just an event of his or her becoming fully awakened, but what preceded it, for how long a period they stuck on it. They stuck to their path and through their effort, sincere caring of the sentient beings, how they managed, how they really succeeded in having good rebirth one after the other consecutively, which is very crucial. Otherwise, it's like take, taking one step ahead and two, three steps back, picking up. I'm all, kind of every time, just starting from the scratch. Even after having generated Bodhisattva also, which is very clear in the confession prayers we say, right? It includes having generated Bodhisattva, 
not Arya path. Arya path is no return. But generating bodhisattva, generating bodhisattva is self is not a guarantee to keep on engaged, to keep on what you call being born in a fortunate rebirth. So while doing while we are doing our best in making the most of the opportunity, at the same time we should be thinking about this in a larger scale and in a longer term sense and thus explore and gather the Dharma and integrate them in such a way that we not only generate merit but keep on building on it through successive rebirth in the fortunate realms. And also pray for all other sensing things to, to be able to do so. And to be able to be of the greatest benefit, surest benefit, most ablest way of doing any benefit of sensing things would be by attaining full awakening. So let's wish that that could happen. And make a determination to make the most of the time, whatever time we have left in this life. And like this has been a wonderful opportunity, let this life also be a wonderful opportunity, creating a similar world in the next, and the next, and the next, so that whatever efforts we make, keep on contributing to the next world, only grow more. So that's very essential. So I want you to contemplate on this for a while and come to this determination to do the best in the Dharma sense, which could be done in any scenario, any situation, like I was saying, if one is particularly into the Lojong practice, then situations are not supposed to make any difference in being able to practice it. The worse the situation, even the better. So every opportunity can be available. So with this, generate a sense of hope. In the determination to make the most of this time and wish for others to see. So that we could all make the journey from samsara to nirvana to Buddhahood. supported by the fact that we have this the nature embedded within us. Ever. Okay, so Let's now move on 
where we left, we just did the reflections last time. And in connection with the topic on the mind and its potential, particularly dwelling on its clear light nature, uh, the following section kind of builds on it under the under the caption excellent qualities can be cultivated limitlessly we have to think of what does limit limitlessly means doesn't we hit a limit doesn't we hit what do you call don't we hit a wall when we become fully awakened in terms of cultivating compassion or can it still be improved or does it really mean that? <laughs> In a way, yes. Buddha's love, compassion is unfathomable. And in terms of who it extends to, it's also unfathomable. In what ways it will be manifested, it is unfathomable. There's no limit. It is, it is, there's no such thing like, oh, Buddha ran out of ways he could be compassionate. No. Right? So there's no such thing. So in terms of how it will manifest, to whom it will be extended, for how much duration it will be extended, there's no limit whatsoever. So I guess it is limitlessly, infinitely developed. developed. I was going to coin a new term. It will be limitlessly developed infinitely developed in that sense. And the reasons for that are being presented here. In commentary on reliable cognition, Dharmakirti explains Dhammakirti's work is called Commentary on Reliable Cognition. And this is a commentary to Dignak's text. Samakundi, Manasamujaya, Compendium of Reliable Cognition. So, in Commentary on Reliable Cognition, which is a commentary on commentary to Dhammakirti's teacher, not direct teacher, but indirect, mediated by just one generation, Dignaga's text, called Brahmana Samujaya, Compendium on Compendium of Reliable Cognition. So that's what this is a commentary of. Dharmakirti explains why it is possible to cultivate the mind's excellent qualities limitlessly and to transform our ordinary mind into Buddha's fully awakened mind. Three factors make this possible. Yeah, in the, in the, in the monasteries, we are hard-pressed to come up with a watertight, watertight, supposedly watertight reasoning to establish this. 
Yes, you heard it correctly. I said ten ten. Ten ten comes because mind has a very stable base and it has this nature of being habituated in such a way that eventually it wouldn't need any extra exertion to generate it. This is this takes a while. I mean, from our experience, it is we can attest to it to some way if we have done and practiced. It becomes easier, 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 easier uh, with, with the mind. But then, more particularly, it is so when one has hit a very significant milestone of developing the mind then it kind of takes no extra accession, no kind of starting over, but rather right from there you can generate it. If this were to be the case with the jumper, then he would have trained in such a way that now he doesn't need to go back and go back and then run from there. He could just sit. Like we see frogs doing, <laughs> but frogs do do deceive us. It almost looks like he's not making he or he he's not making any effort, but they do like they right. <laughs> Depending on how hard they press, they will be able to jump higher or further. But every time they have to do this, I'm speaking of cultivating love or compassion to such an extent that even this is not enough. This is not needed. True. As soon as one cares to, or as soon as one encounters suffering, boom, it will be there with that strength. So that's in the nature of the mind. And to a certain extent, we can see with our afflictions how we have been so habituated. We don't have to contemplate, I want to be angry, 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 angry. Here I go now, I'm ready. No, it doesn't take that. It doesn't take that. Who knows where this came from, right? If one were to think of no past life and no future life, then it's a big question. How come I can be this angry? Oh, even small children, some can be so angry, some can be so kind. Oh, that was quite something to see, the video of a small girl, when her mother would deliberately film her by questioning, by asking, by conversing with her, yet at the same time filming. This little girl is so sincerely against fish, fishing, killing animals. Particularly fishing, that was the main topic of the discussion. She was crying. It's not good. People are killing it for food. No, they should not be eaten. 
I just don't like, no, no, I don't want to eat fish. Oh, it was quite something. But then there can be some who can be so rude, right? So rude, so easily angered. But then they can, can throw tantrum anytime. They do not have to prepare for the tantrum. Tantrum is already there, ready. Almost like they came with it. Trum, 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 trum. They can beat the tantrum. <laughs> yeah, they can throw the tantrum. And to that extent, we have been habituated in it. And in the scriptures, it says, depending on you look at yourself and which affliction is strong, that's the case. If it is unusually strong, stronger than others, it's the case of your indulged in it. If it is equal, then it's the case that you have not indulged in it, nor have you made effort in addressing them. If they are special, especially low and unlikable, then you have made special effort in the past life in addressing them, in cultivating antidotes to them. How else would we explain it? Not just from brain, it is very difficult. Very difficult. And then when it comes to the theory of mind, well, the theory of mind, this really got me. The, the expression theory of mind, it is so skewed how you are using it. Theory of mind doesn't mean what is the theory of mind, right? It means our it means our our capacity not our capacity our our yeah maybe our capacity our capability of of guessing reading uh locating others mind so this is one of the expressions that had to be first figured out clearly with before translating. <laughs> so, so anyway, even the, the 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 nature of mind, it's evolving, even from a scientific point of view. Also, now these days in the cognitive science, they're speaking of the so-called four E, right? Four E theory of cognition, which they generally say is kind of bringing mind, brain, environment together uh, in supporting learning and education. But, but apart from that, they're kind of ex expanding it into, into almost defining mind. This caught my attention when I got a mail from Mind and Life Institute. And I wrote to Susan, Susan Bauer, who is now the president of Mind and Life Institute. I said, did you really mean this? I saw this in the, in the uh, newsletter. Did you really mean this? This I just shipped from the uh, mainstream scientists' take on mind and the relationship with brain. And she wrote back, said, yes, we mean it. And, and then 
I was eager that, oh, maybe they are aligning more into the Buddhist way, but not quite that. <laughs> it is different from the mainstream mind, scientific uh, understanding of mind being nothing but property of brain, and that when the brain stops functioning, there will be no brain. And this reminds me of one thing. Anyway, so, so then she wrote back, yes, we did mean a shift from the mainstream way. And then she said that it would be, that, that it would be better if some other uh, employees of the Mind and Life Institute, particularly those who are into the science part of it, science explain it. And they did. They wrote a long letter. I, I, I know that uh, person who was from Emory and went there. So, so Susan had her write me. And that's where this 4E way of understanding mind. And by the way, the 4Es are embedded, extended, uh, and what? And inact inactive, inactive, yeah, inactive, and enacted maybe. Uh, so, what is the fourth one? Pardon? And no, um, environment is being covered by this understanding of mind. But the mind itself is now qual qualified into these four E's. I said embodied, right? Embedded. Oh, yeah. embodied, embedded, extended, connected. Yes. So they are even thinking of extended. Extended in the sense of extending into the environment. And into the society, into the culture, but but it it doesn't come close to thinking of mind in a in in a, in a sense of a stream. It's almost like you have mind there, no mind, mind there, no mind, <laughs> or at least conscious mind there, no conscious mind there. But I don't necessarily think that they are bound to this understanding that it has to be constant. But in terms of how would they explain that the person is alive until he or she is dead without having consciousness at any given time, if there is no such way, then would they explain that there is a stream or it is always kind of a blotched of mind here? <laughs> so, anyway. So, so, the, so this number one is touching on the first base. The clear and cognizant nature of the mind is a stable basis for the cultivation of excellent qualities. So here we are uh, confining that explanation to the sutra levels only. So, the, so here, clearer and conscious, clear and cognizant nature, or what we were calling uh, mere luminous and knowing nature. 
is something that is shared by all things mind, all things mental, all things, even mental factors. In that, it has this uh, basic quality of luminosity or clarity capable of reflecting reflecting something on, on it. And on top of that, of even of even uh, relating with the object with a very unique uh, with a very unique uh, way, unlike that of a mechanical way, but very unique subjective way, be that of knowing, thinking, reflecting, imagining, whatever. Right? So that quality is shared by every mental event, be that even of the afflictive nature or the non-afflictive nature. It's shared, and based on that, it takes those manifest forms. So those manifest forms may come and go, but the, the underlying kind of where underlying or the underpinning mental uh, nature or the mental quality of it kind of keeps going on. Doesn't even stop. Keeps going on. And and although it can be fully explained in the highest yoga tantra, but even here also uh, we can kind of come up with a working, working understanding, working theory of this continuity of the mind. In uh, in that the the recognizable, if the recognizable attitudes or forms of mind, this way or that way, are only temporary formations on a much much uh, what do you call uh, sustaining sustained layer, if you will, of of uh, mental quality, and that that quality amounts to the reflective nature, luminous nature, reflective nature, and as well as together with that of cognizing it, or that of subjectively engaging with the object. That is always there. And so that makes for a very stable base. So whatever you are going to build on it, whatever you are going to build on it, there would be no chance for the for the for the rug underneath to be lost. It's always there. So if you develop good qualities and then kind of uh, habituate on that, habituate is another term for meditation, meditating on it, familiarizing on it, making it, uh, uh, making it a most common go-to thing. <laughs> a most most often go to thing, then one would develop that quality, and eventually it will become so habitual, so hap so uh, cultivated that one would hit the point when now no no prior attempts, or prior contrivances, prior uh, cultivation of it. Uh, would be required. One could right away 
generated in that uh, well-developed form. And then the more developed it is, it, it will just spontaneously, it can be just spontaneously generated. So in the scriptures, the, the, the contrasting example used is that of water in a very crude sense. We're not going into what the water is made of, what is a molecule of water looks like, what are the atoms in it. It is, it, it, that's not, that's not something denied or contrasted with nothing, nothing to do with it. But we are using water in our general understanding of the water as an example and saying, boil the water. Right? You boil the water and then don't hope that the water will become so boiled that eventually it will turn red and into, <laughs> It will be gone. It will, it will, it will be evaporated totally, and there will be no water. And don't keep burning it, burning, burning the stove. Then the the utility will become round. <laughs> so unlike that, mind can never the continuum of the mind can never be severed, can be never cut. And we never, and 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 as I was saying, the full explanation will be available in the highest yoga tantra when we touch on the very just the very source of everything. Let's let's leave that that aspect of of this subtlest mind, but but it is something that has ever existed and will always exist together with its accompanying energy, right? So that's that's the combination of mind and body in its subtlest form, which would never ever sever. That is the uh, comparison. Compared with that, all the rest of the minds are adventitious or lubruva, lubruva, temporary, uh, adventitious, lubruva. And that's the only sustaining one. So one could kind of extend it, stretch it to that, but it doesn't necessarily have to. One could stick to this mere luminous and knowing nature of the mind, which is something shared by every mind, any form, and which is like the underpinning uh, base, uh, never to be lost at all. It just keep continuing and taking different forms. And then in terms of taking what form one could exert more say in what form it should take and it could take, rather than just leaving it at at its at its at, at the mercy of what the mind is habituated with. So the clear cognizant nature of the mind is stable basis for the cultivation of excellent qualities. So that's that's the reason why uh, His Holiness Dalai Lama, I shared it with you, uh, emphasized on really getting in touch with this so-called clear, and luminous, and knowing nature of the mind. Just to get a touch with it, get in contact with it, get a test of it. Um, in a way, kind of clearing, in a way, clearing all 
temporary formations, temporary sh what do you call apprehensions or formations or uh, uh, expressions of the mind, but rather let the mind, bare mind, kind of come from, come about. And His Holiness was suggesting that the most most uh, convenient time might be when one rises up half awake, half, half asleep, <laughs> and not engrossed in any kind of a problem, and one could look at that. One could look at that mind, or let the mind kind of see something. He was suggesting that either you seize that time when the mind would be not engrossed, not inclined to touch on any particular topic, would be just there. You are half awake, half asleep, and try to kind of look at that state of mind, care to look to the mind at that time. That's a possible time when there's hope to encounter the mere luminous and knowing nature of mind. Or else, he was suggesting that you open your eyes and look at a picture of Buddha or whatever very clearly. Right? Through your eyes, you let your mind kind of register it, and then eventually make an extra effort in not running, not following the eye consciousness while the eyes are open, but not following it, but rather looking at the mind. Rather looking at the mind, looking at okay, registering the Buddha's image. Right? So look at the mind itself. So one one reasoning being put forward in in one of the texts that I saw was that in our life, from the time we are born till we die, the mind's continuum will never, never sever, never be disrupted. That doesn't seem to be so much of help because until then, so long as we have brain, we are supposed to have mind, right? Or from a scientific point of view, also. <laughs> so, uh, but nonetheless, it is something to be thought about why the mind doesn't stop while we are. During the time we know we are, we, we know of our being alive, why doesn't it stop? Why is it? Maybe we will say the mind, the brain is always at work. Right? And because of that. But, uh, but it, it's, 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 it's a topic to think about. Why couldn't it? Why couldn't mind, why couldn't break and brain, if brain were to be, where to be fully responsible for the mind. Why doesn't brain give mind a break? <laughs> Why doesn't mind seek a live? A short break and then come back afresh. Yeah. In this regard, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not that we have to kind of uh, insist on this kind of example. There are so many so many examples, so many happenings in the world that uh, point more in uh, 
the agreement with the mind being a stream that extends beyond this life, this body. Okay, it is firm and continual. There is nothing that can seize it. There is nothing that can sever it. For example, if we continuously boil water, oh yes, it will dry up and nothing will remain. So unlike that, right? That, that's a big that 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 would be a case of the base being not stable, base being not stable, the base itself giving up with the heat kind of. Oh, no, 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 I cannot stay. I also follow you. <laughs> and it also dries up. That's not the case with the mind. That's the that's the understanding. But how do we how do we make case for that? If you look around, then we can very I would say very convincingly see signs of some signs of something coming coming from before. If we were to say that everything is just brain, and we start like a like a blank blank yes blank slate. What was the uh, technical? Yeah, tabula rasa, tabula rasa. <laughs> okay, yeah, tabula rasa. So if we were to start like that, then different we turn out to be, even among the identical twins. It's irrespective of how you kind of how you control them. <laughs> I use as a control. Mm. Yeah, how how you kind of maintain them? Uh, the physical aspects of them could be similar, but in terms of their attitude, etc., etc. There's so much mm, kind of aspects of them that, particularly dealing with the mind, that are so different, and there could be a reason for where they are coming from. Likewise, is the case with child prodigies. We do not as much see child spiritual prodigies, but we do. If you look, um, some who can pick up things so easily, and we would look at it and then, and see it familiar or could recite, memorize things, something like this. There are incidents like this shared by His Holiness in that in that biography by Rato Jung That's a book of spiritual nuggets. So, and his holiness doesn't care to necessarily share it in the public, but to those he could confide in, he shared those.
But then during the time of the Buddha, or at least during during the just before the first council was con- convened, uh, Ananda was uh, sent away with a seven-year-old arhat or eight-year-old arhat. Yeah, to teach him because Kashipa had to look for a way by which he Ananda could be pushed to attain a hardship. <laughs> because they were 499 short of one to make the, to make the so-called uh, number required. Quorum, yeah. Quorum might not be needed, I think, but they may have just come out with it because congregation can be, council can be done with others or who knows. So he was expelled. He was expelled by coming up with acquisitions. In the Vinaya text, it, it, it comes up with, I don't know, I I think eight, eight acquisitions against him. Yeah, that would be so interesting. On those basis, he was expelled. But then, with the caring to send a seven-year-old or eight-year-old Arhat to be his attendant. <laughs> he could not. He could not but pursue for Arhatship, otherwise every day is a shame. <laughs> but Arhat is, having been sent on this mission, he was serving him, but he was Arhat. Wow. And before being sent with Ananda, this Arhat was managing things for the monastery. They will these adults come and then they will present to him and he and they was oh, would he guide us? Would he tell us how to do things? He is a seven year old but with arhat mind. He wouldn't even care what others are thinking, he would just guide them and then yeah, and he was the one he was sent Ananda. Ananda could not help but Push for his arhatship as soon as possible and be done with it. <laughs> be done with this attendant. <laughs> and then finally he was invited in and become part of the council. Not only part of the council, he was one of the recitals. Yeah. Okay, so, for example, if we continuously boil water, it will dry up and nothing will remain. There is no basis for limitless boiling water. Or the water remaining in the, bo- in, the, in, the, in the utensil and becoming something. No, it's totally dried up, gone into the, gone into the thin air. Excellent qualities cannot be 
cannot be cultivated limitlessly on an unstable basis, such as the physical body, because it falls ill, ages, and eventually dies. However, the clear light mind is a stable and continuous basis for cultivating excellent qualities. The more we train in excellent qualities, the more those qualities will be enhanced limitlessly until they are fully perfected in a state of Buddha. So along with suggesting that the mind itself is has a very stable base, it's also saying that the support, the bodily support that it requires, would have to also cooperate with it. Right? We would also have to cooperate. So in the scriptures, even from the sutra point of view, there is this mention. Of course, it has to come up with how someone progresses to becoming Buddha. And uh, so relying on its own device, re relying on its own sutra device, untouching the Vajrayana device, but it is suggesting that our hearts, the Arya beings, begin to eventually develop the, the excellent signs and qualities of the Buddha, slowly and bit by bit. So that means not only transforming the mind, but even transforming the body to support it. But nonetheless, mainly it, it comes down to the mind's quality of being uh, of being luminous and of mind's quality of being luminous again cognizant in such a un uh, in, in such a stable way. I kept going on. My my clock here is showing seven twenty-two. <laughs> we still have one more hour. <laughs> Okay, I thought. Yeah, let's let's touch base on the big question a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but next time, yeah, I think that those were all worth it. We have no hurry to finish it, right? So here, the 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 question about. Mind, reflecting on how the mind enters the fertilized egg and the very fragile connection between body and mind throughout life, and the question of what on earth is connecting these two things, one physical, one non-physical. And then the question of why consciousness is able to take up and reside in this formulation of earth, water, fire, wind, but not other combinations is also coming up. Are their teachings on this and the scriptures, the commentaries. So, 
from a Buddhist perspective, I was saying the main force as a samsaric being is our karma that connects. Because if we look carefully, the nature of our body is limitless. People are engaging in so many, so many actions. They're not just re repeating their past actions. They are coming up with new actions in how they misbehave and how they mistreat others and mistreat themselves, right? So many different ways in, with so many, so much uh, diversity of uh, intensity, etc., etc. So the potential for beings being born in so many different forms is there. Even to this day, scientists are finding or discovering new species. <laughs> they make a big deal about us finding a new species. Uh, how in the world can they say that they have almost gotten everyone? It's, it's, and they make a big, big deal when they find a new species of snake, new species of frog. Oh, it will keep on coming because the, the kind of karma that people and beings engage in are so varied and so different that, that the prospect for the bodies to be so different than what we know of uh, is very much there. And even from a Buddhist uh, worldview point of view also, the body that we know of as, as this is not something that is commonly shared by most of the sentient beings. Most of the sentient beings have very different body. Uh, the one uh, animals and human beings. Although who is called human being may also change. It's not a fixed thing. Uh, but even if we say that it will always be six, six, six categories of migrators. Usually people say six realms of sentient beings. That's little, I, I think it's not uh, right. Realm-wise, there are only three in samsara, but, uh, but, Variation-wise, in a broad, very, very, very broad sense, variation-wise, there are six, excluding the intermediate beings. So when we speak of six types of migrators, we are not including the Bhartovas. We have to remember, when we pray for all sentient beings, make sure we include them also. <laughs> How do we do that? By thinking of four ways of being born, right? Four ways of being born. Then we include everyone, every sentient being, including the Parthos, because Siva Prama is, is included in it. Oh, Sipashi. Not, not, not four ways of being born, but sipashi. What would be sipashi? Sipa is such a difficult thing to take, translate. People will sometimes translate it as becoming. 
for becoming oh this is so strange <laughs> if you say for becoming maybe not i mean it it may it may fit with bhartovas because they are in the in the process of becoming something kind of waiting to appear and be someone but whatever others because that includes us also because it's the most comprehensive uh, classification of sentient beings. So even within sentient beings, uh, the the kind of a womb-born birth with the body that we have is not the most common one. And then we have other uh, sentient beings with other forms of body when we speak of the celestial beings. And even within uh, within human realm also. Even within human realm, we speak of all four types of birth, including born from egg. So, so long as we are in samsara, then karma will be the force to impel us into different births. And that birth would have necessarily would have to have the capacity of undergoing suffering or, or experiencing pleasure. Pleasure. That's that's the unique thing about sentient being. And that's that's what you will agreeable because we are very unique in having in having this sentient aspect of us. And because of that, the resultant states would have to be again associated with the sentient nature of it in the form of the capacity for suffering, for experiencing pleasure and whatnot. For so so long as that is present, then no matter what kind of a make what kind of a make or what kind of a model or or make it is it is possible <laughs> uh, so so i, I don't uh, recall clearly right now i cannot quote it clearly but it was very clear in my mind and i think in the mind of others in the consciousness of others when the first mind and life was it the first or one at least it was one of the initial uh, mind and life conferences when his holiness sat with scientists and they kind of agreed on a working uh, theory of what a sentient being is there I mean it's a it's a compromise because it both parties would have to agree. So they agree to something that's capable of intentionally moving from one place to another. Intentionally able to move from one place to another. But at that time, now that I cannot, I haven't checked with others, it, others may know it, but it was very clear. There were mention of some, mention in some sutras of someone being born as what looked like plant and being stuck at one place. 
and undergoing suffering, not able to move. So that moving criteria is not present there. <laughs> so, so in terms of what can be the limit, this is a, it's very difficult to say because of the karma that we that we engage in. Please, yeah. Venerable Balasong has something to share. I would think it would be able to experience suffering. Yeah. I would think that would be the qualification of a sentient being. Yes, 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 yes. Um, suffering, definitely, but respite here and there possible, but suffering, definitely, because of a sentient being, because of being driven by afflictions. Now, if that becomes possible if, as say, some kind of mechanical things become capable, capable of doing that. Then, I think even in the conference also, His Holiness didn't rule out. Someday, all of a sudden, your computer saying, "Hello, I'm now hungry. Feed me." <laughs> they, they, they did. Uh, what do you call? The, uh, theoretically, agree. Provided it has the capacity, the conditions are right. Even the computer, it could be a computer sentient being, but not in the way we are thinking of right now, right? So, yeah. So because of that, it be, it becomes imperative for it to be born, to, for it to be born in a body that is that is vulnerable to suffering. We'll stop here. And do the dedication. <laughs>